you have a Bible, uh, Acts chapter 13, I'm going to read through it, and then Pastor Matt is going to come up and walk us through the passage. So, Acts chapter 13, um, verses, we're going to read verses 13 through 43. Verses 13 through 43, and I'm realizing that I did not rehearse reading this, and there's a lot of, I think there's going to be a lot of weird names of places and people in it. So, I hope you enjoy my attempt to say these things, as they taught us in seminary, just say it with confidence, and people won't know that that's not how that word is supposed to sound. Um, So, we're going to start with Paul, no, I'm just kidding, Paul and Barnabas at Antioch in Pisidia. Paul and Barnabas at Antioch in Pisidia, starting in verse 13. Um, And I'll just say, we've been talking a lot about the church starting, and now we're going to get into a season of talking about the message and really what it is that uh, Paul and these people have been saying to those and what the gospel sounds like. So um, here we go. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. I'm doing pretty good so far. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But when they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen, the God of Israel, or the God of the people of Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God had brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now as witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that was what God had promised to the fathers, that he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. 
And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts of Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, we um, are so grateful to have such a detailed account that Luke gives us of the words of Paul here. And Lord, while they all sound familiar to many of us, we feel that we've heard the gospel story, we've heard of the Old Testament, Lord. Um, We know that these also sounded familiar to the people hearing them, and yet they were to bring life to them in a way that they hadn't known before. Our prayer is that you would do that for us in this time, God. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thanks, Ed. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, it's good to be with you guys uh, again, even though it's, uh, it has to be in this way. We kind of keep saying that, and so I'm just going to um, stop saying it and get to what I uh, was going to talk about concerning uh, the Sermon of Paul's. And so I, uh, I get the distinct privilege of preaching a sermon on a sermon. But before we get to Paul's words, I, I kind of wanted to talk to you about uh, one of uh, my favorite cities uh, in the United States. And maybe it's because I've, I've gotten to go there so many times and see a lot uh, in the city, but that is uh, Washington, D.C. Um, there is something about uh, the stuff in Washington, D.C. that you get to see. Not necessarily what goes on in Washington, D.C., uh, but all of the monuments and the Capitol building, all, all that uh, cool history that I just love uh, going, uh, going and just taking in. Uh, I, I actually uh, got to go on uh, a couple uh, school field trips uh, when I was in middle school uh, to Washington, D.C., and uh, it is, it's one thing to see uh, D.C., uh, it's another thing to see D.C. with a bunch of middle schoolers. Uh, but uh, as I would go, there were always a few things that I, that I absolutely love seeing that were on a must-do list. Uh, uh, stuff like the Smithsonian, because you come to find out that the Smithsonian just isn't just this one museum, but it's all of these uh, museums that would take you uh, weeks to go through and, and take in everything that they have. Uh, Ford Theater, where uh, Abraham Lincoln was shot, and then across the street he eventually uh, died, I always found fascinating. Uh, one of the things that I, I can never quite understand 
when we would go on these school field trips to uh, D.C. was always that um, the tour guides and the parents would build up the National Mall, and it was always disappointing as a middle schooler to find out that the National Mall wasn't actually a real mall. Um, it was just a lot of open space uh, in the middle of the town across from the Capitol building. Uh, but I, I, I love seeing the Capitol. The, the, the Capitol building and being on the steps of that building was uh, phenomenal. But Far and away, the best thing, the thing that you always waited for, that you were on the lookout for, was fake Oakley sunglasses. Uh, That's right. As a middle schooler, uh, you could not wait to get to Washington, D.C. and find the street vendors that were selling the fake, cheap, $10 knockoff Oakley sunglasses. And it didn't matter that two days after you bought them, the paint would be chipping because when you bought them, they looked fabulous. And so every time you loaded up on that bus ready to get go with your classmates, everybody would announce how much money they had. And it wasn't money that they had for food or anything like that. It was how much money they had for buying fake Oakley sunglasses. If you had 50 bucks, you were getting five pairs of those bad boys. And so you, we would all be on the lookout as we were driving around this amazing town with all this stuff to see. Where was a street vendor selling fake Oakleys? And whenever anybody spotted one, they yelled out that the bus had to stop. And we would pour off of that thing and be like locusts just around that street vendor that we'd go away and there'd be nothing left. The cart wouldn't be there, everything. We would buy it all. It was the only thing you wanted to walk away with were those fake Oakleys. Now really, the thing about D.C. that I I think is so impressive is is as you go around that town and you see the history and you see these buildings, but you see the White House and and, and then the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial and and, then the Vietnam War Memorial, but then the Capitol Building and the Supreme Court, all of this different stuff, the Pentagon, there is just a real sense of power, uh, of the power of of the country, of of the power of its history, of of the decision-making that's going on there on a day-by-day basis. It just kind of emanates all over the place. It is a place of importance. And what's more is all of these buildings are meant to remind us of who is in charge. That actually in D.C., one of the amazing things is there aren't these tall skyscrapers because actually... The Capitol building is the tallest building. Nothing is allowed to be built higher than that building. It is a reminder of who is in charge, who makes the decisions, where the power really rests. And the idea in our country, obviously, is that the power rests with the people. We can debate that, right, and stuff. But that is a real thing. The reason I bring that up is as we talk about that, that has a lot to do with the town that Paul and Barnabas are in. But before I even explain that, just kind of let you know where we're at. Here in chapters 13 and 14, what we get from Luke is actually the account of Paul and Barnabas' first missionary trip. And so what we've already seen uh, that Ed didn't read for us is at the very beginning of chapter 13, they, they go to Cyprus, which is this pretty big island, and, and they minister there for a little while. And then once they're done there, they sail back across the Mediterranean uh, to uh, southwest Turkey. And uh, they, they, take, they make the trek up the mountains into this town called Pisidian Antioch. And uh, this is a pretty important town, not necessarily because it's huge or anything like that, but because of how it was founded and what it came to represent. And that is Pisidian Antioch was founded, colonized, in order to give those men who had served in the army land as payment for their years of service in Caesar's armed forces. 
And so it was, it was this town full of retired servicemen from the army. And, and, and because of that, it, it was people who were devoutly loyal to Rome and to Rome's rulers and, and to the governing authority of that empire. And, and it also reflected that in how it was built, the way the town was set up, the, the things that they could find in the town. Uh, there was a theater, there was an aqueduct, which, which was distinctly Roman. As you walked into Pisidian in Antioch, they had, they had built an arch that commemorated Caesar's victories. Uh, and, and so you couldn't step one foot inside the town without being reminded of why it was there, why all of these people had what they had. Uh, there was even a few towns across the empire that Caesar had uh, chosen to write his autobiography and scripted on the outside of buildings. Pisidian Antioch was one of those towns. But as important as all those things were, as much as those reflected Rome and its values and the fact that Rome was the one that had power and authority in that day, the thing that stood out the most, that really said this is a place of power, this is a place of importance, was that they had you guessed it, fake Oakleys. They had vendors all over the place that were selling them everywhere. No, it was actually that they had an imperial cult, a large presence of the imperial cult. They've actually found as they've excavated Pisidian Antioch that the entire center of the town was dedicated to the imperial cult. And this was the cult that was established when Caesar Augustus uh, claimed that he was a god. And so people were to give offerings, to pray to him, to ask uh, for his blessing, uh, that he was the one that protected them, that he was the one that made sure their lives went smoothly, that they had everything that they needed. Pisidian Antioch, it makes so much sense that this town would be largely influenced by and built around this imperial cult because the people there literally had everything that they had because of Caesar. And so you walk into this town, as Paul and Barnabas did, and the feeling of power, of being in a place of importance, of saying this is what it's all about, this is who's important, this is who calls the shots in our world, it was palpable, much like you would if you were walking into Washington, D.C. today. And it's here that Luke decides to show us what Paul normally did, and that is when Paul would enter into a town, Paul tells us later in his letters that he would first go to the synagogue and preach his message hoping that the Jews would respond to it. But if they didn't, then he would go on and preach, it, preach to the Gentiles. And this is the one place that we actually get what Paul's sermon there was as he was in the synagogue. It's the one place that we actually get to hear and read the words of Paul. And we have to imagine that probably when he went into synagogue after synagogue, his message was roughly the same one that we get here from Luke. And so I wanted to take time this morning and look at this and say, what is it that, that Paul found so important to preach time and time again in the synagogues? And is there something in it for us? Is a sermon that was preached over 2,000 years ago still have meaning for you and me today? And so as we look at it, I'm just going to tell you, we want to look at this. I want to split his sermon up into just two basic parts. There's a first part and a second part, and we want to see what Paul is saying uh, first to those Jews and then see if there is anything possibly in it for us. And so the first part is there up to verse uh, 25, verses um, uh, 13 to 25, where, where Paul goes through the history of Israel. I mean, that is the first thing that sticks out, is, is just the structure of a sermon. That Paul walks people who probably knew the history of Israel through the history of Israel. 
It's actually like, as, as a pastor, I, I think one of the things that you dread the most is preaching on a passage that it feels like everybody in the room knows exactly what the passage says. You, you sit there and you say, okay, we're going to read this passage and they're going to just zone out because they're going to think, I've heard this before. I've heard actually like probably six sermons on it. I, I, I know all there is to know about it. There's nothing new that they can tell me. And, and so you're so worried that people are going to tune you out before you ever get the chance to say anything meaningful to them. So actually what Paul does here seems like probably the worst thing you could possibly do. He says, hey, let me tell you guys something you already know really well. Let me talk to you about the history of Israel. Let me talk to you about the people that were important. He, he, he goes through uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob very quickly. He sums them all up. He looks at the Exodus and Moses, and obviously everybody knew about that. He moves on to Saul and to David, and then he finally ends up with Jesus. Pretty dull stuff. But Paul takes the time. He, he takes the time to walk through this history that everyone knows about because it is an important point to make. It's a subtle one, and yet it, it, it lays the foundation for what he wants to move on to in the second part. And that is as he walks through the history of Israel, notice that all of the people that have come to mean so much, the, the heroes of the faith, uh, the ones that all of, of these people sitting in the synagogue that day would look to and say, we want to be like that. We want to have faith like Abraham. We want to have the guts of Moses to listen to God and to step out uh, trusting in him and leading people uh, out of bondage and out of slavery. These heroes of the faith that mean so much to the Israelites are secondary in Paul's accounting of their history. Paul's actually telling them, as much as you guys might think, this isn't actually a story about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not actually the history of Moses leading Israel out of slavery. And it's not even about how David is the example for the kind of king you can hope for in the Messiah that is to come. All of these things that are good things, all of these people who are amazing examples of, of godly men and women that we can look to and we can hold up and say, this is what we're supposed to be in our life. This story that you know is the history of Israel isn't even about them. No, Paul says, this is God's story. Notice as he walks through those first verses in this sermon, it isn't that Abraham did this or Moses led them out. It's that God started it. He planned it, he initiated, and he brought it all about. God is the one moving Israel through this time, expansive time and suffering and hardship and victory and exodus and freedom. Paul begins to share the gospel message here in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch by explaining something that can't be missed because if you miss it, Paul says, you're, it is going to be a huge obstacle in your acceptance of the message of who Jesus Christ is and what he is about. And the message is, is really simple, but it's this. It's what you see is what you get. And the point Paul's making, it, 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 isn't, the like, it isn't the thing where like when I'm talking to my wife about like how... Um, how she can't take anything seriously, and she's always giving me a hard time, and Hannah just says to me, well, what you see is what you get. You knew what you were marrying. 
you can't complain. This is a, you, you knew it. Uh, we dated for six years. What do you want me to do? I'm not going to change. And so what you see is what you get. It's not that. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's saying what you see, what, you, what is right in front of you, what it is you choose to focus on, whatever your main focus is in your life, that's what you're going to see is going on in the world. That's what's going to be primary to you. That's how you're actually going to understand not just what's happening in our world, what's happening around you, not just the, how you understand the fact that Rome has enslaved you, it has conquered you, but also how you understand what has taken place in your own life, the purpose of your own life. What you see is what you get. I've talked a few times about um, how I love basketball. I, I, love, I love playing basketball. I, I played basketball uh, all the way through high school, um, and um, uh, I, I was thinking about this idea of what Paul is trying to do, and I think one way to do it is, is if you could imagine trying to explain to somebody um, what, what basketball is all about, how you play basketball, that just has no idea of, of sports or competition or anything like that. It's basically any time... Uh, it's anytime Justin and I try to explain sports to Ed, that's what it's like. And so the, I was thinking of like if you're trying to explain what the, how basketball works, there'd be basically two ways to go about it. And one way would be is that it's, it's a pretty simple game. You, you have a ball, you have a basket, the goal is to get the ball in the basket. And whoever does that more wins. And, and, and what's more is that there is someone between you and the basket. And so you've got to figure out what they're doing. You've got to counteract it uh, to get by them and make sure you get this ball in the basket. And that's it. That's the game. It's pretty simple, straightforward. There you go. But there's another way to see it, right? I think anybody that's ever played it, watched it, has any idea what basketball is about, knows that there is a bigger, more complex game taking place inside, uh, inside of that pretty simple idea. You know, it, the first take is true. I mean, you, you've got a ball, you've got a basket, there's somebody in, in between you guys. But you're on a court, there's lines. And, and what's more is those lines mean something. There's a three-point line. You, you get different points if you shoot it here versus there. You also have four teammates that are all around you. You have, you have a coach, and the idea is, is that you all work together in unison to create scoring opportunities. And so you have plays, and, and you know if I go here, you're going to go there, and you can pass the ball and all those things. And so what it becomes then is it's actually more about what you're doing as a team than what your opponents are doing. And you have the ball. That's what matters. And so you actually are the ones that dictate the game. It doesn't really matter what they're doing. They have to react to you. It all has to do with what your focus is. Is the focus that I have somebody in front of me that's trying to keep me from my goal? Or is the focus that I actually have a lot here to help me do what I'm supposed to do? And there's a lot of different ways to go about it. And so actually, we are the ones that are dictating rather than reacting. Paul's point that he's making here in this first part, first half of his sermon, is that the Jews have been playing the game the first way. They were failing to see the bigger picture. All they could see, what they were focused on, what they were seeing was their opponents, the people around them, right in front of them. And they were letting others dictate what they did. They had become more concerned with what Rome and Caesar were doing. They had been concerned with what Syria and Assyria, through different times of history, were doing. 
I had a basketball coach that would talk to me about this because uh, when I played, I played point guard. And so my job was to distribute the ball, take in everything that was going on. And there would be times that I would get so locked into that simple idea uh, of the game that there was this person in front of me and they were, they were in my way. And so I, I just had to get around them. And, and he would talk to me about tunnel vision is what he would call it. That I would put the blinders on and I would lose sight of the bigger game. I would lose sight of everything going on around me. Not realizing that there was an easier, better way to do it. That I'd gotten so sucked into the person right in front of me that I had forgotten about all of my teammates, all of the people there to help me, everything good that I had at my disposal. I think that's what Paul is talking to his Jewish audience here in the synagogue about. Now granted, they they still thought of God. But somewhere along the way, they had started seeing him in the background. He had become secondary. The people were what they were focused on. And not just their heroes, but the villains in their story as well. And the thing was, is that as they became consumed by how the world around them was working how it was different, how it was wrong, how, how it was always trying to tempt them and, and pull them in. Uh, they, came, they became consumed with understanding how it was uh, that they could give into this and so how they were to separate themselves from it. They actually started thinking that God was going to act more like their enemies. Because why? Because that's all they could think about. And so their idea of when God's Messiah would come is that God's Messiah would actually overthrow their enemies the same way that their enemies had overthrown them. That he would be a political ruler in the same way that Caesar was a political ruler. That that he would institute his rule and reign by, by tearing them down through destroying them in the same way that Syria and Assyria had come along and done to them all of those years before taking them into exile. That they would finally be the conquerors instead of the conquered. They had lost sight of the bigger picture of what God was really doing. And there is nobody better to talk to a group about this than Paul himself. Because this is exactly what Paul had done just a number of years, probably somewhere around 15 years before. If you remember there with the stoning of Stephen and Paul and everything tied up in that, there were two main lines of reasoning and thought and how to handle this small group of, of Jesus believers within the Jewish ranks. There was Paul's line of reasoning where that any, anybody that possibly threatened the righteousness and the sanctity of, of the Jewish people and that would possibly lead them away from God's law into something else, they had to be dealt with strongly and swiftly, and so they had to be snuffed out. But there was also somebody else in the room that had a difference of opinion, and it was actually Saul's teacher of the day, Gamaliel, where Gamaliel tells uh, the Jewish council, he says, you know what, guys, maybe what we should do is take a wait and see approach. Because, you know, the truth is that God can still work and God is known to actually do some things that maybe we're not quite used to. We've seen him change up his tactics from time to time. And so, you know, if we just kind of sit back and wait, if this thing's of man, it's going to fall apart. But if it's of God, there will be something to it. And we really don't need to interfere with it that much. Saul couldn't understand that. He, he couldn't see the logic or the reasoning behind it. And all he could see was the people in front of him. 
As much as he was about God's thing, as much as he thought he was about God, God had become a background secondary actor to Saul, where all he could see was the people that he thought were his enemies. They were what had to be dealt with. They were the ones that dictated his actions instead of God dictating his actions. Paul is the perfect person to speak to a synagogue full of people that are feeling this way because he knows what drives people burdened by tunnel vision. It's fear. When we are so blinded to what possibly God can be doing around us, what God is working for and moving towards in our world, we will be gripped by fear. When we don't have God in his proper place, that is at the center of everything, all we can see is what we have to lose. All we can see is that if things go this particular way, it might all fall apart. There's only bad options when God is secondary in our life. I was going to say at this point in the sermon, as I was preparing, I was going to say, as a pastor, I've seen this, but I, it's not even as a pastor. I've seen this in my own life as, as time and again, God has come to me and challenged me to give more of my life to him. And, and that is when we are so focused on what those around us are doing, what they're doing in our life, what they have, places that our friends and family have been able to aspire to and we want to be there as well. When our focus is so honed in on someone or something other than Jesus, other than God, when God comes to us and says, I'm doing a new thing, and what's more is I want to do a new thing in you, the first thought that will always grip us is fear of what we will have to lose and give up when we come to him. That if I come to him, if I give him more of my life, if I give in to what he is doing and, and, and where he is taking me, I, I, I might have to lose my independence and I really like calling the shots in my life. It doesn't matter that things around me are falling apart, at least I'm in control of that. I might have to lose how I spend my time. I, I, I might have to give up like an hour or two on Sunday mornings and man, I really love sleeping in on Sunday mornings. Lose control of my money, who I date, how I date, what career I have. When we ourselves are burdened by tunnel vision, not seeing what the bigger picture of what God is up to, but only being able to look right in front of us, it seems like all we have to do is lose. Paul knew the major, what the major hang-ups for these Jews would be as he was preaching this message to them. You see, the Jewish people had a, a special status and exemptions un, under Roman law. Uh, and we're going to talk more about that next week. But if they came to Jesus, if they were seen as, as giving in to this new cult that wasn't an ancient religion as Judaism had been classified within Rome, they could possibly lose those things. There was a lot to lose. Paul even addresses here in the synagogue, it's not just that Jews were there, he addresses God-fearers, meaning people that hadn't converted to Judaism. And so it, it makes sense that there would be people in there that had been these ex-soldiers, that had been given land because of their service, these God-fearers who had everything because of Rome. And as they walked into that synagogue that day, the entire city reminded them, make sure your loyalties stay 
where you can keep what you already have. If something changes, there's a lot you have to lose. This is what it sounds like to have tunnel vision focused on those in the world around us. I, I think maybe one of the greatest examples of this is just even uh, of the difference between how we can see our world and, and, and even our lives and where they are going and, and, and what God is doing when, when God is at the center of it all versus when we're just focused on other people. Uh, the third largest religion in the world uh, currently today is Hinduism. And uh, if you don't know a lot about Hinduism, that's okay. I don't either, but I read about it on Wikipedia, so I can talk to you about it. Um, Hinduism has a very different view of time than we commonly do as Christians. You see, we see time as linear, that there's a beginning point and it's moving in one direction. Whether or not you think that's good, that it's going in a good direction or a bad direction, we'll talk about that in a second, but it's at least moving in a direction where in Hinduism they see time as cyclical. It is a cycle. It moves around and around. Actually, the metaphor that's commonly used is that of a seed and a plant. They, they say that time works basically the same way that planting a seed does. That you, you plant the seed, it grows, it flowers, it produces, and then once it's done producing, it begins to wither, it dies, but then it leaves behind a seed to be planted again and it starts all over. It is a concept of time that is basically, I think, personally, the most hopeful idea that you can have of how the world works when you don't know Jesus. Harold Coward, uh, talking about the idea of time in the Hindu religion, says that the passage of time is identified in the Hindu Puranas with the corruption of humans. As time passes, the dharma, or righteousness, of the first half of the cycle is used up so that by the last half, injury, greed, Hatred, delusion, disease, and old age arise due to the deterioration of Dharma. I think there's probably a lot of us that reading that and hearing it would say, wow, that sounds like our world, right? That the longer you live, the longer things go on, we can see how things begin to deteriorate, right? That most of us probably in, our, in a conversation this week said something along the lines of, man, it just seems like greed is running rampant these days. That hatred is all over the place. That, my goodness, are people delusional about how the world works, right? I mean, this is what we are feeling these days as we look at the news, as we look at social media, as we look all around us, is this idea that at some point things are going to fall apart, that the best we can hope for is not that things are moving in an upward trajectory. Actually, everything looks like it's moving downward. Everything is falling apart. And so the best thing that could possibly happen is that it's a cycle. That's the best we can hope for when man is in charge. When we are looking at people and we are looking at the worlds and the systems that people create, doesn't it seem like this is the way it works? That everything starts off great. Everything starts off with a promise. It's all fresh. It's all new. It's all shiny. And then in 15 years, the air conditioners start to break. And in 20 years, the water heater breaks down, right? Everything falls apart. Everything decays. 
And if your worldview is so focused on the people around you, on politicians that are talking, on what your friends are saying on social media, this is how you're going to see not just the world, but your life as well. That the best thing you can hope for is to get out before it gets too bad. And traditionally, this is the way people saw the world. As you look at ancient religions, it was, they usually ended. Their end times predictions had to do with the world falling apart. And most people say, well, that's Christianity too. But if you read the last couple cha- chapters of Revelation, you find out it's something different. That God is actually doing something to where he is coming through and he is victorious. That actually Christianity is unique in that the idea is that we are moving upwards. That God is doing something remarkable. That he is moving towards a redemption and a recreation of a world that has fallen and ensnared by sin. Now some of you might say, well that's not how I understand the world. And actually I don't think that many people do um, think that way. That actually people are pretty hopeful about where things are going. And I know, I mean, they're atheists. They don't believe in God or anything like that. We live in a unique time in all of history and that we're after the Enlightenment, which started in the 1700s. And the whole idea on the Enlightenment is people actually aren't that bad. And that if we would just become enlightened, if we would just give in the common decency and a sense of morality and all of these things, that actually, apart from God, we as people, we can, we can actually, we can make it. We can make it great. The thing is, is that what we've seen now is that the the 1900s were actually thought by many people that was going to be the century that all of this came about. That it all went great. That finally mankind got it right and we were able to get past war and famine and disease and hunger and starvation and diseases. That actually people held up World War I and they called it the Great War because it was supposed to be the last war. What we see in the 1900s is that a year in which mankind was supposed to kind of come forward and strut its stuff apart from God is it was the bloodiest and deadliest century in all of history. And, and, and so maybe the Hinduism is on to something in, in the idea that when mankind is left to itself, the best we can hope for is a cycle. But Paul's message here in the first half of his sermon is, is simple. He says, your focus is all wrong. Focus on God. Because when you focus on God, is that you see that God has been working towards something miraculous. God has been bringing everything in history to this climax in Jesus Christ. That we don't have to fear what will be lost, but look excitedly ahead at what is to come. Because in him, all things are possible. In him, God has done something great. That is, God has fulfilled the promise that he has given us. The reason Paul spends time going through this, the reason we've spent so much time talking about this first idea is because he's saying before we get to Jesus and what he's about and what he's done, if you are burdened by this sense of tunnel vision where all you can see is what is right in front of you and you have lost sight of the bigger game, that God is at work and God is the one doing this and God is moving things forward. If you're so wrapped up in in what people are saying and what they're doing and that you have to react to those things. 
that they're the ones calling the shots, that they're the ones that are in charge, that they're the ones that have to be dealt with, that they are what is most important, you're going to always miss the message of the gospel because the message of the gospel is inherently tied into God is the one in charge. God is the one over it all. And so if you feel like today, like if you look, can look back on, on just even like during this pandemic and what has been your focus, what is the thing, what do you find yourself finding peace and what, what gets you most riled up? Is it, are you able to kind of sift through all of the information you're having to take in and be able to come to the conclusion, well, at least God's still in control? Or are you finding yourself so overwhelmed by fear that people that think differently than you might actually gain power and control. That, 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 that people that you see as villains and enemies and, and as a threat to your existence, that you can't stop thinking about it. You can't stop talking about it. It's a pretty good indication then that maybe God's become secondary in your life. There has to be enough honesty with ourselves to say, I've lost focus. I, I, I've gotten zone, honed in on this one thing, and I've lost sight of what God is about and what God is up to. Paul throws this out to his listeners so that he can move on to the next part that we wanna, I want to walk through you with pretty quickly and that just is the whole point of it all. It's almost like he's saying, if we can jump over this one hurdle, we can get to the really good stuff. And so he immediately puts all this in practice to show what God is up to. Let's look there at verses 29 and 30. He says, And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, talking about Jesus, and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Paul says, this is what they did. This is what the people that you're so focused on, the, the, the enemies uh, that you would constantly be talking about, hey, can you imagine what those guys did? Let's, they need to pay. They need to suffer. They, they, they need to be shown how wrong they were. He says, this is what they did. But those amazing words, he says, but God. Remember, Paul says, don't worry about them. Yeah, there's gonna, fear is going to creep into your life. You're going to say, what if they respond this way? What if they do this thing? What if our government decides to do X, Y, and Z? Paul says, but God has raised Jesus from the dead. Don't worry about them. I know that you're in this place, he says, that's surrounded by all of these physical reminders of who has the power and who calls the shots. And I mean, if anything weighs on your life, it's that idea, right? That, that if, if these people wanted to, they could take away my land, they could take away my business, they could take away my family, that they could execute me. But he says, but God raised Jesus from the dead. The greatest power over you has been overcome by the power of God. So don't worry about what everybody else is doing. He says, this is huge because in verses 32 and 33, he says, And when we bring you the good news that God, that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. 
God has raised Jesus from the dead so that we can have everything that he has promised us. Oftentimes we talk about the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, but we can't forget the resurrection of Jesus Christ because in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we get the full promise of what God wants for us. In verse 38, he says, it is the forgiveness of sins, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. This is the thing we all need, right? And the thing with tunnel vision, again, if we cannot overcome that, that idea of, of, of I'm just so laser locked in on, on what these other people are doing and I'm reacting to them, it can actually block our need, our, our understanding of our need of the forgiveness of sin in our life. Because the problem in our life isn't about the fact that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. The problem in our life is about that these people won't get out of our way and we can just do the things that we need because we know that our ideas are right and if we could just have it our way, everything would be great, right? But in reality, even if we had it exactly the way we wanted it, even if our ideas were allowed to be the ones that ran rampant and called all of the shots, we would all not be able to escape the reality that is we can't forgive ourselves for the things we've done in our life that we know are wrong. And it's a weight, it's a weight that holds us down and keeps us from experiencing life in the way that Jesus Christ intended for us. A few years ago, after a Sunday morning, I, I had um, someone come up to me and they asked if they could meet with me uh, in my office. And so um, I, I was there uh, talking to them and they were talking about it. It was obvious that, that Jesus, God was speaking to them and doing something uh, in their life. And, and just all of a sudden, they just kind of blurted out as though it was like the thing that they came in there needing to know and yet had, didn't know how to bring it up. And so it just kind of came pouring out. They said, if you've, if you've tried to commit suicide, will God forgive you for that? And I was... I was kind of shocked. I wasn't expecting that to be the question. And I just kind of said, yeah, of course. I mean, yes. That, Jesus does forgive us for anything we do, any sin that we have. And no one sin is worse than another. So, of course, yes. And they said to me, they said, well, I don't know how long ago it was, but they obviously, this person, they had, they had tried to take their own life. And then uh, someone that they knew in the church had told them, that God doesn't forgive people that try to do that. And so for years, through their teenage years and their 20s, they had walked around with this guilt of what they had done, knowing they needed forgiveness, and yet thinking it was something that was not available to them. The promise that God has given us is that we all need something that previous to Jesus Christ hasn't been available to us. That is the forgiveness of what we have done in our past. How good it is to be able to sit with somebody who has been racked and weighed down by the guilt uh, of the past. And how hard it is to hear that that was denied to them by the unkind, insensitive, totally wrong words of someone else. And yet to be able to emphasize to them how much they are loved and they are cared for 
by the God that created them, and he wants them to know that he forgives them and he loves them still. We all need to be forgiven for the things in our life, and we need the forgiveness of God going forward and forward because we aren't perfect. We don't get it right all the time. But for as good as that forgiveness is, as I was talking to this individual in my office, I was able to say to them, but wait, there's even more. There's even more than the forgiveness that God wants to offer you. There's more that comes with this whole thing. As good as that is, and you would be perfectly happy with that, God doesn't stop there because of how much he loves us. And that is exactly what Paul says. Just when you think the sermon's done, he does this like best pastor thing ever. When you think the sermon's done, he says, but wait, there's more. And he goes on to mention something else. He mentions in verse 39, he says, And by him, the same one by which we are forgiven, by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Freedom. Freedom. Not just forgiveness, but freedom in a way in which you, you can understand and you can know that you are loved by God and you are of value. Freedom in that what you want more than anything is God. And that it's not you just simply trying to do your best. Freedom in which it is no longer on you, but it is by His grace through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's like Paul like, just turns into Mel Gibson in like, Braveheart and like, starts yelling freedom everywhere. This thing that people thought unimaginable, that it was this, it was this idea that they kind of whispered around and, and they were like, wouldn't it be nice if it could be this way, but how could it ever be that way? And Paul gets to announce in the synagogue, finally, it's here. This is what we really desire. This is what we really need. And we know that, we know that because of our, how our lives are, how, how, we even, how we even react to the things that are amiss in our lives. We, we've got three kids in our house. It's way too many. But we've got three kids that are, are um, pretty bunched up pretty close together. Have, one thing that we've realized uh, now at this point in four and a half years of parenthood is um, having a kid that is four and a half, a kid that is three, and a kid that is one is that basically whenever we now enter into a stage of development, we're in that stage for like four years. So when the first one starts potty training, we're basically potty training for four years straight now. Like once the one gets done, the other starts, and, you know, and, and hopefully the other gets done, and then the other starts. Like we don't want to do two at one time. But right now, one of the biggest stages we're in in our house is the biting and hitting stage. And man, I'm so ready for that to be done. And so when they're all 20, um, we'll be beyond it, I guess. And so being firmly entrenched in the biting and hitting stage, I've noticed there's two... There's two things that we always do when we, when we find ourselves in that situation. The first is we scream and we yell and we hit because hitting's bad. And so, it, no, it, it's actually that we pull them aside and we tell them that they were wrong. Uh, we try to make them cry to get it into, you know, firmly sink in how wrong they actually were. Um, and we say, okay, forgiveness. That's the first step. You need to ask for forgiveness and you need to want to be forgiven. And so we... 
we kind of get them together and we say, tell them you're sorry. And they say, sorry. And we say, now hug and kiss. And they hug and kiss. And then they go back and five minutes later, they hit again and stuff like that. And so we realize after a time that this is a problem. As good as forgiveness is, if we keep having to come back to this place and we keep saying, okay, now forgive them. And they forgive them and stuff like that. And yet we kind of get in the cycle. Well, what good is that? Because obviously the real problem here is, is that they want to hit and bite one another. That they don't want to share. That they don't want to love each other that way. And what's more than anything is that me and Hannah want our kids to love each other. If for no other reason then we don't have to get up from the couch every two minutes to correct them on the fact that they're not loving one another. And so we, as much as we talk about forgiveness, we then move to why it's wrong and why they should want to love their brother and sister in this way. And so we move from forgiveness to desire. And we say, you can want to love them. You can love them like this. Because for as much as it would be great to not have them hit and bite one another, if they still want to hit and bite one another, there's still an issue there. If they still want to, but they know that they can't and they have to hold it in, how miserable is that for them? That no matter what the benefits might be, Paul is saying to, this, to these in the synagogue, both Jews and God-fearers, no matter what the benefits might be of living in a particular kingdom, how miserable is it to live in a kingdom when you don't want the king? No matter how much Rome might be able to give to you, how awful is it to live under someone that you don't want to declare as king and lord over your life? Jews thought that freedom now was impossible. Actually, they, they, they thought, they, they saw the temptations all around them to lure them in. And they thought the only way that, that they would be able to overcome them was for God to get rid of them. God to destroy them, to just to only have God and only be able to choose God. But when God's the only choice and you have to choose them by default, is that really something worth anything? They didn't really want God. They just want what God could do for them. It's Paul's point. But what God wanted for them was to change their heart. He wanted to fulfill the promise he had made to them back in Leviticus chapter 26, where he told them, he said, I will put my dwelling place among you and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. Essentially saying you will want that. That will be your desire. That you will be free to do it. And what's more is your heart will be free to desire to do it. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you will no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. I have broken you out of slavery so that you can be free to be what I've made you to be, to be my people. In his book, More Than Forgiveness, I think Steve Deneff sums this up pretty well. He says, let us remember that in the Gospels, Jesus offers us the good life, that inner place where faith and desire meet. One is, one is forgiveness, the other is freedom. He says, this is the primary meaning of eternal life. It has less to do with the length of life than the quality of it. Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and have life to its fullest. He hasn't come just so he can forgive you. He has come so that he can make you 
free, that your heart can be free to love him the way that you were meant to love him and in turn love others through the love and the grace of Jesus. He goes on to say, it's the rest for our souls that Jesus promised in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. It's the, the condition that enables us to obey the law of God because it's written on our hearts. It's a spirit of adoption. It's having the love of God as the ruling principle in our souls. And so it is much deeper and more radical and lasting than the fleeting sinner's prayer or casual profession of faith that we see so often for conversion changes the heart and not the actions only. Freedom that we can want God, not just simply do what God wants us to do. I tried to come up with like a whole bunch of like fancy ways um, to like end this. I had a bunch of quotes. None of them seemed to fit or feel right. I tried to come up with like a great saying that was memorable for you guys to walk away with. None of that seemed to work. And so I felt like that was God's way of just saying this is simply just what needs to be said. That the freedom that we all know we need, the freedom that we push ourselves to, the, the hope of our desires being different and wanting, actually wanting God. Not just not staying away from sin, but wanting God more than everything else the world has to offer. That kind of freedom. That is what God is offering us. So often we stop just with the forgiveness and we don't move on as Paul is imploring those in the synagogue that we're called to in the same way. To take God up on his full offer of what he has for us. Freedom to love him and to live for him, and to live in him. And so instead of like saying anything and saying, like, here's the, here's the tagline, it, I, I think it's just to call each one of us to ask ourselves to have the Holy Spirit search us out and say, is there any reason why I don't want the promise that God has given to me? The promise that he has brought Jesus to fulfill and to give to us, and that is freedom to know him and to love him. And to know today that it's, it's not about you trying to be better. It is not about you finding out new ways and new habits to make yourself into something different or something more or, or to change what you take in. It is simply by surrendering your heart, your life, that thing, So that Jesus can take that place and fill the entirety. That you can begin to see the bigger picture of what God is doing. That he has used everything, not just in the history of this world, but even in your life. And he has brought you to a point where he said, it's not just that I have forgiveness to offer you. It's that I have a new life lived in me by the power of my spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord... I feel like maybe my job here is just to shut up and to give space to your Holy Spirit to speak to each one of us in the way that you need to. So I want to do that here in these few moments. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you do not give up on us and that you are the one that pursues us. Lord, wherever we may be, would you, 
this morning, Lord, if we are struggling to see what you are doing, if we are more focused on those around us, on our world, on our government, on, on, on the stock market, whatever it might be that has our attention, Lord, would you, through your Holy Spirit, remind us of who you are, remind us of what you're doing, and that you are the one that moves it all, and that you have moved our life so that you can fulfill the promise that you have for us. That is more of yourself. Father, thank you for that promise. Thank you for that love in our life. May we give you everything, not seeing what we have to lose, but everything that we have to gain. It's in your name we pray. Amen.